in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Dustin Melvartis, Lizzie Haynes, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome, all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable, where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Dustin Melbardis, and joining me today is my good friend and co-host, Chad Robinson. Chad, how you doing? You know what, Dustin? I am feeling a little sleepy tonight. I I have my energy drink here. I've oh, I'm having trouble staying awake, so I, I'm really hoping we have a movie that has nothing to do with that certain topic. I've got my big mug full of coffee here, you know, because <laughs> I was feeling a little sluggish and I wanted to make sure I was just, I stayed alert and stayed awake. I don't want to fall asleep. Uh, Chad, it's that season. What's the spooky atmosphere around your house right now that Halloween is quickly approaching? Oh, good Lord. I, uh, I torment my neighbors. I have... <laughs> I have projections of clowns. I've got all these clowns. There's one that my wife particularly hates. It's holding a small child. It's probably way too far over the line. It shakes the small child at people. I have one that I hide in the shower and scare my wife because I I clearly don't want to <laughs> still be married to her. Yes, I, I love her very much. She's the best. It's uh, I, I've got everything. I'll have music for the kiddos whenever they show up. It's just one of those things. I want my house to be the house that kids are brave enough to go up to, get their candy, and feel great about. Like, I did it. But the kids the kids that back off that first year, they'll be back. They'll, they'll try again another year. So now that it's Halloween time, what have you changed about your house? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I, I changed the light bulbs. They're, they are now orange. Oh, wonderful. Yes. A hundred percent effort when it comes to the atmosphere. For me, I live in a neighborhood. I don't go to Halloween parties as much anymore. Uh, I, I put a giant bowl of candy out. We see if the honor system works. And uh, generally, uh, there's a lot of places here in the States where, you know, there's just not really trick or treating that happens anymore. But this neighborhood I've been in for about six years, a lot of people come through. Um, I, I am not waiting at the door to scare them. Uh, I just want Ooh. a little extra sugar, a little extra work for those dentists out there. Well, we aren't alone. It is not just Chad and I. We've got ourselves a guest coming to you for his first time from the United Kingdom, currently in his film shed, lovingly nicknamed Shetty Mercury. It is Dan Cook. Say hi, Dan. Hi there. How are you always? Uh, I'm doing great. I'm doing great. And you've got a, a lovely film shed. How many movies are in there? Uh, just over 3,000 at the moment. But it's a number that keeps rising with every week. Um, Listeners, yeah. you cannot see his film shed, but it looks as if there should be uh, Belle from Beauty and the Beast swinging around on those giant uh, ladders. <laughs> his walls are completely filled. Yeah, that's the dream. That's the dream. I'm, I'm very grateful for you for asking me to be on the show. So thank you very much. Thank We're you. glad you can join. And I'm going to ask something else of you right now, which is just a little warm up question. You know, see. Chad's got himself an energy drink. I've got myself my coffee. But let's say you needed to hand someone a movie, 
a movie to keep them awake. Mm-hmm. Dan, what would you be giving? I'd probably have to go for my favorite film, which is Jaws. I think uh, I think the adrenaline that runs through the through the course of that film just increase, you know, gets bigger and bigger to the point where I can't imagine anyone falling asleep to to watching Jaws. Oh, um, that is the that is the gift that keeps on giving. My my yes. daughter is she's now seven, and as a joke during dinner, I turned on Jaws briefly. There was no mm-hmm. shark; mm-hmm. it was just the discussion of a shark in the ocean. And it was shut off within five minutes, so parents, please don't email me. <laughs> but my, my daughter has a now recurring nightmare of Jaws. So even if oh, you're dear. watching you're watching the movie, it's going to keep you up later. Oh, it's, definitely. You're not going to fall asleep. That shark is going to come get you in your dreams. It's funny. I've seen the film at least 300 times now. Wow. I wrote, I wrote a lot of my, um, my A-level, which we have here in, in Britain, um, on Jaws. Um, I've got an entire shelf dedicated to the movie just up here with loads of memorabilia. I've got the the video, DVD, Blu-ray, a board game, um, just loads and loads of stuff up there. A total film magazine from 1976, which is talking about the film here in the UK. Um, and there are still bits in that film which still give me the creeps. Particularly the moment... Sorry, I know this is talking about another film, but the moment where the... Uh, the, the dock has broken off after catching the uh, the Sunday roast and it slowly rotates back. And I've always found that moment incredibly freaky. He's going to need a bigger shed. <laughs> oh, you know what? <laughs> the amount of people that have said that to me. <laughs> that's, uh, yes. This is either known as uh, Shelly Mercury or Cookbusters in honor of uh, <laughs> because I'm always lending my films out here. So, yeah, it's, it's pretty much my uh my life apart from my kids obviously and my wife is uh is talking about films i don't think i have a single movie that can come close to 300 watches i think uh the matrix is up there fifth element is up there but i think i Mm. top out at like 30 watches of something nice comfort movie jaws yes yes Yes. it is my comfort movie i have plenty of them but jaws is definitely the number one film chad what's the movie that you would hand someone if you had to keep them awake I kind of feel like Die Hard is is oh, the right. Yes, it, it's got the right amount of gunfire. It's going to prohibit sleep, and it's very entertaining. So that's that would be my go-to. Not a bad choice. Not a bad choice, especially if you don't know uh, how it goes. Because uh, I think Die Hard is one of those that is so easily rewatchable mm-hmm. that you don't want to miss any of it that you have come accustomed to. But if it is someone's first time, it's like, oh, I'm riveted. You know, I paid for the whole seat, but I'm only using the edge. Uh, for, for me, and this is this is a little out of the ordinary, uh, a little crazy for me. I landed on a Triple R, the Bollywood sensation mm-hmm. from 2022. Uh, sometime in the last seven or eight months, I saw a clip of it, a clip of Triple R at one o'clock a.m. on my timeline scrolling on my phone Mm -hmm. and i ended up watching the whole thing (laughs) and had a rough day at work the next day yeah Uh, and i would definitely do it again it was something that i made a mistake i turned the movie on and i could not could not go to sleep so i've got the real world application of that that's uh that's a really good choice i'd also probably add if we're talking about uh asian cinema i'd also add uh the gareth uh, evans film the raid the indonesian film that takes place in a um, an apartment block, which is it's oh. pretty much a 100-minute long fight scene. Yes. yes. The raid 
made my top 10 films of 2011 list. Mine did too. Yes. It did for me as well. Yes. And uh, right. And that's, that's one of those movies where you don't got to worry about the plot. You <laughs> just have to. Yeah. And it's not going to let you stop paying attention. There's just exactly. so much action. I love yeah. it. Well, Dan, what's the last movie that you saw? Could it be in theaters? It just could be at home. Well, I haven't been to the theaters in about two and a half years. I, I haven't mm-hmm. been. I, I miss it immensely, but I haven't been for such a long time. I, the last film that I watched was actually the film that we're talking about today. I watched it. We watched it last night as a refresher. Before that, it was actually uh, the Da Vinci Code, the Von Howard film. Okay, um, I like it. You like the Da Vinci Code? I like. I like the book, and I like. I like the movie, and I know okay. that. Not everyone fits in that camp, but I like it. Yeah, I'm, I've got to be honest. I'm not a fan of it. But uh, last month, I watched I watched some absolutely fantastic films. Um, I watched Cinema Paradiso for the first time. I've been watching a load of... Oh, uh, fantastic Akira, film. Yeah, a lot of Akira Kurosawa movies, which I've never seen before. Um, I also started to try and catch up with the Friedkin films that I've not seen yet in honor of his, mm-hmm. his recent passing. So I watched I Cruising and To Live and Die in L.A. So last month was a really good month for me in terms of new watching. I just happened to end it on a film which I'm not particularly keen on, which is uh, The Da Vinci Code. Oh, you were setting me up for failure here because you're mentioning all these cinema greats. And what I just watched was Slother House. That is sloth like the creature. And it is a killer sloth in a (laughs) sorority house. And you know what? If you like cheesy horror... If you you can tolerate B level movies, you're gonna have a good time. Like this is kind of a Zombievers PG thirteen version of Zombievers. Happy Death Day is another one that kind of reminded me of this film. I had a great time. Killer Sloth in a sorority house. I recommend it. Slother house. Slother house. Yes, and that is actually used as a line in the movie. It is uh, groan-inducing, fantastic. It is on my uh, to-watch list in October for Halloween. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, uh, yeah. What's the rating on that? PG thirteen. Oh, oh that's depressed. That's sad. <laughs> that's you sad. Know it, it's interesting, though. I, I'm like, this is a movie I can show my daughter. There's not too. There, I couldn't remember any real bad language or anything mm-hmm. like that. So this is kind of gateway horror for some people. And we need that. Oh, definitely. It, I was concerned because I knew nothing other than killer sloth. I was like, Oh, is this just going to be a TNA film in a sorority house? Cause almost every film set in a sorority house has that. Nope. Completely sur- surprised me. They did not go that direction at all. Mm-hmm. They're more the happy death day type uh, sorority sisters. So they're very catty and stereotypical, but mm-hmm. That's you. You want to see those people get slashed up by a <laughs> raging sloth? In one of those, uh, truth is stranger than fiction. I think I'd rather view, and I think I'd rather uh, take in the experience of fraternities and sororities through film rather than through interaction of uh, yes. on actual U.S. college campuses. Uh, <laughs> there's there's more stories that come out in the news about another atrocity that happens due to these things. Last movie I saw, and I got to give you guys my train of thought here. So I watched the original Super Mario Bros. movie from 1993. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> I'd seen it before. Uh, Hoskins and Leguizamo. Uh, yes. And I have to explain my train of thought here. So I watched a little bit of an interview with Oliver Reed. Mm-hmm. Because someone had mentioned that I am quiet at work. 
And it reminded me of how Oliver Reed plays villains or heavies, to use his language. Um, And then I remembered an interview with Bob Hoskins, where he had to be told that he was playing a video game adaptation movie because he didn't know what Super Mario Bros. was. And his child showed him the game and said, look, that's you with the little sprite bouncing around. And he he looks at it. He's flabbergasted. And it's a classic interview moment. He goes, I used to play King Lear. (laughs) (laughs) so like that that clip made me laugh so i had to put the movie on i don't recommend it Uh, i'm sure that the one that came out this year is heads and shoulders above it but i haven't seen it yet why because it's a new movie maybe i'll see it in 33 it's charming my daughter i i really enjoyed it i'm a big fan of the mario games and um the more the more you know about the games and its history the more you'll get out of the new uh movie unlike the 1993 film which is it looked like they'd never seen they played a Mario game in their lives. That's correct. So, yeah. And that, and that was correct. Uh, well, love talking about these other movies, but we've mm-hmm. got one that is the point of this show tonight. Chad, what are we covering tonight? We are thankfully finally covering nightmare on Elm street from 1984 best year in cinema, by the way, and also my birth year. And that is starring John Saxon, Ronnie Blakely, Heather Langenkamp, Amanda Weiss, Nick Corey, Johnny Depp, and Robert England. Budget of $1.1 million, and it grossed $25.5 million that year. Placed 40th in the box office, just behind The Muppets Take Manhattan, and just ahead of The Woman in Red. The number one movie that year was Beverly Hills Cop. Hey, you got to check out our episode on uh, Retro Movie Roundtable number 162, uh, where we cover that movie as well. IMDb rating is 7.4. The critics of Rotten Tomato give it a 95%. That's high. The audience score gives it an 84%. That's pretty high as well. Uh, Nominated for a couple of uh, awards from the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror. It it was nominated for Best Horror Film and Best Performance by a Young Actor. That would be Shu Garcia or Zhu Garcia, JSU. You figure it out. And it is given an AFI distinction, uh, AFI's 100 Years of 100 Heroes and Villains. That is at number 40, Freddy Krueger, the villain. So we'll start with our guest, Dan, with this movie. Now, it may not be up there with the 300 views of Jaws, but what is your background with A Nightmare on Elm Street? Well, in my 100 favorite films of all time, it's at number 13. I think it's I think it's a great film, and what I haven't I hadn't seen it in quite a while, and I was worried watching it before I watched it again last night. I was really worried, thinking, is it going to be as good as I remember it being? Because I didn't see it until I was in my late teens, um, because my mum and dad owned the the video cassette of A Nightmare on Elm Street when I was a kid, and I just remember the image of Freddy on the front of it completely freaking me out. So it took me a long time to actually pluck up the courage to watch A Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, and when I watched it, I of course, I of course loved it. But I was really worried that I would think, ah, you know, some of this hasn't aged particularly well. Some of the performances aren't particularly great. Am I going to love it as much? And then I finished the film last night. I thought, yeah, I still absolutely love A Nightmare on Elm Street. I think it's one of the most econ- brilliantly economic horror films made uh, by Wes Craven. And um, yeah, I, I think it's, I think it's brilliant. And that's one of those fears I get too, especially if it's a movie that I'm bringing to the table is, 
Uh, am I going to view it differently this time? Am I going to have a keener eye for the things that maybe I don't want to see or have avoided paying attention to because I had already put it away as, oh, this is a favorite of mine. Uh, I guess one, one more additional question is uh, not, not really about how it holds up, but because you are covering the movie for a show, did you find that you had different expectations? Um, I didn't really have expectations except for those that I'd already put into my head because right. as I said I thought um, because I because I review everything I watch now and I watch everything with such a critical eye I was worried that I wouldn't be able to get past that first love that I had of the film when I watched it um, as I say when I was 18 19 or so so I didn't really have any expectations because I knew that I I loved the film and there were things that I I thought I thought the film does have problems and I was worried that maybe those problems would overtake the the love that I have for the film. So no, I, that I think uh, it's hard to say really. I go into everything with an open mind, whether I've seen it or not, because sometimes I can see a film that I've absolutely loved in the past, rewatched it, and I thought, ah, maybe it's not as good as I remember it being. Conversely, I've seen films that I've not really enjoyed in the cinema, rewatched them, and I thought, oh, okay, no, no, it's absolutely terrific. It just requires more than one watch. Nightmare on Street is pretty much one of those films where I've consistently, I've thought, now this is a pretty terrific horror film. I've only had that issue with if there's an extremely impactful movie for the first time you see it, and even if it is rewatchable, it's something where if you already know, does the magic go away? Mm -hmm. And I'll say two years ago, maybe it was even last year, uh, the magic and the lesson of the movie 12 Angry Men was something I had known for decades, and it, it caused it to fall on my year and ranking of the movie. And I was uh, appropriately lambasted by my other hosts saying, how do you not rank this movie so high? I'm like, because I already know it. Like the, the lesson of it was something I had. Well, I don't need to relitigate it. Chad, what about mm. your expectations or background for A Nightmare on Elm Street? You've just brought up an anger that I haven't really, <laughs> I just got I was going to say, I'm not, I'm not getting involved. I love, I love 12 Angry Men. So I don't <laughs> it was new to me and it's like top 10 movie of all time but yeah night strangely i am with dan here i did not get to this movie until very very late i was in my late teens maybe i think it was actually my first year of college i my parents I, i've talked about this before my parents were strict i wasn't allowed to see r-rated movies so this was a big deal and I said, okay, I'm going to start knocking out these horror franchises that I should get to. And Nightmare on Elm Street was at the top of the list. So I saw it and I immediately bought, it's, it's funny because eBay didn't regulate as well. I bought a, uh, the seven movie set from eBay, but it wound up being like burned copies from Hong Kong. So mm. <laughs> the good stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There were some problems on some of the discs. But I, I did immediately watch the rest of the franchise. I was just enamored by it. I mean, there's there's nothing like Freddy Krueger. There's no terror in horror more than, hey, everybody's got to sleep. This is a guy, there's no escaping him. He is going to come after you in your dreams. And to me, I've done 1,300 unique horror films. This is my favorite. Hmm. I will... I will say Scream is inherently the better movie. Scream is a perfect movie. This is my favorite. Oh, that's great to hear uh, because you, you never know when our guest brings a movie to the table exactly what it is, what our backgrounds are. Now, I had seen this as a child, uh, and, but actually the very first uh, Wes Craven 
movie in this franchise I ever saw was Wes Craven's New Nightmare. That's an excellent one, but without context. A lot. I've actually seen that one more. However, uh, this was one of those, and I think a lot of our listeners will probably have a similar experience where it came on TV and you didn't see it fully. So this past watch through was the first start to finish watch through I think I'd ever had. I may have had some others that were nearly full, but it was like on during a Halloween party or it was on in the dorm room and it was one of those things. Oh, I know it. So this is the first time that I am approaching it critically. And I, I'm glad that I did. It's not as if I was looking for something to, or hunting for anything to pick apart. It was just, oh, I feel like I know this movie, but do I? And I don't think I, I truly did. I have gone on record on the show to say that Freddy Krueger is my favorite horror movie killer slash monster because of the things that you had said, which is he comes at you in your dreams. He's not just a stoic stalker. He it, There is a magic to him there is an an unassailability to him and in this movie alone we see oh actually he's not all powerful but the things that we get from him um, i'm not going to do chad i'm not going to do what we did with leprechaun which is list out the powers but (laughs) but the idea is he's got some things he can do and some things that aren't that he may not be able to do and that creates this i'm not going to say mystery but an uncertainty as to precisely what he is um, and I think maybe we'll address that, especially since he found his way onto the AFI top 100 villains list. We'll, we'll talk about Freddy in detail a little later, but that will come after this break. We got to take a little break. We're going to share a little info about our friends. And when we come back, Chad is going to give a he's going to give a plot summary. And that means if you have not seen A Nightmare on Elm Street, you better go watch it. Um, but make sure that you make yourself uh, some hot coffee, no warm milk. Don't fall asleep. Welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast. I'm Bill. And I'm Jason. And this is the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. So whether you're a brain, a jock, a valley girl, or a Jedi, we've got some 80s classics for you. Do these movies stand the test of time? Are we discovering something new? Is there an 80s movie we're finally watching for the first time? Join us each week as we dive into the cinematic nostalgia that inspired and influenced a generation. From the hits to the cult classics, we'll discuss our earliest memories, favorite scenes, fun facts, and our not-so-favorite movie moments, too. It's the All 80s Movies Podcast, now available on all major streaming platforms. Please subscribe and happy listening. And we are back. It's time for Chad to provide us a plot summary of A Nightmare on Elm Street. Take it away. Teenager Tina Gray wakes up from a terrifying nightmare in which a disfigured man with a glove filled with knives attacks her in a boiler room. She discovers that her nightgown has four mysterious slashes. Next morning, she talks to best friend Nancy Thompson and her boyfriend Glenn Lance, who had similar dreams. They all stay over at Tina's house to help her sleep, But then Tina is mysteriously gutted and her boyfriend is blamed. Nancy begins having hyper-realistic dreams and waking up with scars and burns from a mysterious assailant. Tina's boyfriend Rod is killed in his jail cell by an apparent hanging. Nancy then discovers the disfigured man is named Fred Krueger after pulling a hat from her dream into the real world. 
Nancy's mom reveals that Fred was a child murderer, and the parents of Elm Street took justice into their own hands and burned him to death. Nancy's boyfriend, Glenn, is then killed in his sleep, and Nancy is determined to fight Freddy in his world. She asks her police officer father to wake her up in 20 minutes, but of course he doesn't show up or take her seriously. Nancy believes she pulls Freddy into the real world and refuses to acknowledge his powers anymore, causing Freddy to disappear. Nancy walks out to find her friends and her mom, who had been killed, waiting for her, and she gets in Glenn's car. The car appears possessed and drives off as the top closes and reveals it's the same color as Freddy's sweater. Freddy then drags Mom through the door as little girls jump rope, singing, One, two, Freddy's coming for you. (laughs) Great recap. Or is it the color of Freddy's sweater, or is it the color of the dreaded Hall Monitor's sweater? (laughs) (laughs) Well... I guess we can say we don't know for sure, ending the movie with a bit of uncertainty as to what is real, what has happened, what has lasted. Um, I'm going to start our discussion phase with just a a little request, which is that we try our hardest to focus on this movie and this movie alone, not the rest of the film franchise, but I am a fair and patient arbiter. So bring in whatever examples you like, as long as you bring it back home. And we are discussing and rating this movie only tonight. Uh, ordinarily, I wouldn't bring up the atmosphere until later in the discussion, but I'd like to start with that, Dan, Mm -hmm. is that this is a a maybe unlike anything else, at least at the time, and it's probably the best example of the, the, the dream attacker. Or we have something that is, like I said before, a little bit magical. Uh, what is it about the atmosphere of this movie that puts it so high on your list? Well, I think it's, I'm, I'm a big fan of the slasher genre in general. Um, some of my favorite films, such as Halloween, Black Christmas from 1974 in particular, is is my absolute favorite slasher movie. And um, the, the thing is with those is that they, they're pretty low on actual kills. But due to the music and the cinematography, the lighting and the, the steady direction, there's a sense of eeriness to them that the later slash, well, the, the slash films that uh, came after Halloween, Friday the 13th and Prom Night and My Bloody Valentine, as much as I do enjoy those films, they didn't really have much in the way of subtlety. Uh, Wes Craven brought that subtlety back by blending the slashers with this sense of um, supernatural intangibility. And that's why I think, um, in answer to your question earlier, why Freddy has become so popular and why he, he's left such a mark on the horror genre is because he's unlike any other of the major slasher villains of the 70s and 80s. He's not mute. He's got one hell of a personality. He talks. You know, he, he'll, he'll give you a one-liner before he'll gut you. He likes to play with his victims. I almost said play with your food. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. Like a predator. And... Um, and I think that atmosphere that conjured through the cinematography and particularly through Charles Bernstein's very odd music, which alternates between soothing lullaby and atonal grinding and crunching of synthesizers, it all helps to create this very odd atmosphere, which is not unlike that of being in a dream or nightmare. Yeah, Wes Craven would agree with you, Dustin, uh, as far as just talking about this movie. Wes Craven didn't want any more movies. Mm. He hates the hook of this movie. But Bob Shea, who is a miracle man, Bob Shea went this movie 
almost collapsed so many different times. And Bob Shea is putting stuff on credit cards. He is begged, borrowing, and stealing just to be able to get this up and running. Two weeks before they were getting ready to shoot, it was canceled. Everyone was told to go home. Bob Shea's like, just give me a day. Let me work on this. Even, even at the end, they couldn't get the negatives released. The lab hadn't been paid. So Bob Shea has to put that on his credit card. They This could have absolutely done in New Line Cinema. New Line Cinema is now known as the house that Freddie built. So yeah, it's, it's just one of the one of these movies where Wes, Wes is focusing on, he has a suburban horror. We have that in Scream. We have that in People Under the Stairs. We have that on Last House of the Left. It's what Wes does so well is just these suburban horror. And what could be more terrifying here? We, could, we have a mystery. Okay. Mm-hmm. We've got this weird demon thing. What is happening? And the parents all, they give these knowing glances of, okay, this burned guy with a sweater and a hat is chasing you. No, this can't be. And I like that little bit of mystery in here too. And you get the mom uttering the line, he can't get you. Mommy killed him. Yeah. That is such an extreme line. And so now it transforms into, this is his motive. This is why Freddie did it. Is he is hunting down children whose parent, the sins of the father, yeah. is hunting them down. And so we get that story, and it just transforms from a slasher to a revenge film. And I'm I'm with Dan. I love my slashers. They're my favorite as well. Mm-hmm. This is just this is on another level as far yeah. as slashers go because. During the time we are casting stuntmen, this is what you did for your villain. You went out for a slasher film. You went and got a stuntman. You got the tallest guy, Kane Hodder, who plays uh, Jason, Jason in later films. He interviewed for this. He he auditioned. He talked to Wes Craven because they were talking about getting this giant dude. The criti- criticism with Robert England was he looked like a geek and he was short. But you know what? He injected his personality into this. Mm-hmm. So. It was, we want a heroine. We don't want someone that's falling in the woods Friday the 13th. We we want a villain that talks and scares you with words rather than just, I mean, the claws are terrifying enough. Mm. The, but this isn't my bloody Valentine where he's got a gas mask and an axe and that's all you know. Yeah, I think that's the thing with freddy i think with with jason and michael and leatherface and harry warden from my bloody valentine because you can't they don't say anything or they don't emote anything there's almost this sense of an a a locomotion a a locomotive of death it's going to come towards you without almost like the shark in jaws unfeeling in a way yes Yes. there's a sense of un almost unknowing unstoppable chaos that's coming towards you but with freddy because he speaks because he references these other characters in the film because he directly talks to these characters as if he knows them there's that sense of like personal revenge against them that he knows what he's doing is wrong and he's getting immense pleasure out of it and there is something so sadistic about freddy krueger which is something that was lost in the, the later films. He became much more of a comedic character. But in the first film, he was very much like the the archetypal boogeyman. You know, boogeyman. He he yeah. he would be almost like a villain in a, a Grimm's fairy tale or something. 
Um, he knows what he's doing is wrong, and he's absolutely loving it while he's doing it. Oh, he relishes all of that. <laughs> Playing with your food is probably the best term that you mentioned, Dustin. I will, I will mention this. So later films, and I know you want to keep it to this film, but I think it's relevant, is later films make it clear that there was child molestation. But yes. during this film, there was a big uh, case. I, I can't remember the name of the case that came out in the 80s. There was a lot of uh, child sexual assault. And so it was dial back. McMartin was the scandal. Mm-hmm. It was dial back for this movie. They kind of sidestep it. And they just talk about him being a child murderer. And the remake of this one, they they delve into there's molestation as well. Yeah, I'll, I'll kick this to you, Dustin, because you just said this is the first time you've you've watched this. Did you yeah, understand? Sorry. Did you pick up? Okay, maybe there's something else going on, or do you kind of like the option of maybe the parents were wrong, like maybe they burned the wrong dude? So there's a couple things, and while I will say it's my first start to finish. Uh, I had always been, I, I like to, like a sponge, soak up when it comes to movie theories or the rights and wrongs, especially with remakes. And I remember there being a little bit of a fervor with if this is going to be reimagined, are they going to stick with child murderer or go with child molester? And, uh, and I know that that is a squeamish topic uh, for everyone. And I think I've gone on record on the show saying like, guys, can you give me a crime that isn't just drug trafficking into the United States? And then if we do go that far, where it's like, it's not just child murder, it's child molestation. Mm-hmm. Then we've got, well, are we comfortable with filming it or having it on screen? So what we do have is since we know Freddie plays with his food in this sense, like how many times do we have a shot from above of Freddie on top of I believe the ones that we get the most are on top of Tina or on top of Nancy. Nancy, Nancy thank you. I'm about yeah. to say Kathy. Or on top of Nancy. And there's wrestling going on. And though and we know he's a small guy, but though he is this kind of strange monster that floats in and out of what's real and what's not, um, I would like to believe <laughs> – that's a w- weird way of saying it, but it makes sense for me that he's he's kind of playing around if he gets tossed off the bed, that he's letting himself be overpowered in this way. He's letting himself play out this sick game at any time in these chases. He wants them to be chases. And I think uh, Wes Craven does a great job of showing you that, like, oh, he likes the chase because with that hand of his, he could just gut or kill anyone. But if he's going to track you down from behind grabbing first if you just kill someone right away where's the fear where's the where's that terror to drink up and that's what freddie wants and then if you put it back into the context of the helplessness the fear the terror of well if we introduce him that he's also a child molester then for a for a moment or maybe for too many moments in the audience's eyes they're like oh i'm watching this guy who has a a fun personality because he's got one at all uh, but he's actually really terrible because he did this and we have a body count, 20 kids from long ago. Uh, so there, there's something where I enjoy or I guess I respect that the choice was uh, hey, the, the, the time right now. It's not good to include the child molestation part. Let's go with child murderer. I still feel as if there is um, there's a lot to sink your teeth into and it, it is what makes this movie special beyond just the sequels by itself. Oh, this guy is bad, bad. 
Yeah. You could almost say, I was thinking about how you said it's not just a slasher, it's actually more of a revenge movie. And that's where I'm going. I like it better as a revenge movie. Mm. I, I, I like it better. You could almost call this a secret on Elm Street instead <laughs> of a nightmare on Elm Street. And that's when the depth really reveals itself. Go ahead, Dan. Sorry, I was going to say, going back through Wes Craven's catalog, the film that really put him on the map was uh, Last House on the Left. Um, yeah. And the lead character in that, the lead killer, is called Krug Stilo. And he is just a despicable piece of work. The film was banned here in the UK as, as a video nasty. And it is a relentlessly nasty film to watch. And Krug Stilo in that film isn't only a murderer, but he is also you know, a sadist and a rapist. Um, I think if they'd gone that route with Freddy Krueger, for one thing, he wouldn't be the the series would not nearly be as popular as it it is, and I think it also would have turned off audiences because it would have made it much more like a. Uh, I don't know if it would be uh, trivializing the the notion of child molestation, mm-hmm. but I think by making it just just a, a murderer, it makes it, it still allows him to sit in that same canon of characters like Jason and Michael and. Um, and uh, Leatherface. Um, I think I think it's a very good balancing act that Wes Craven does there because that you could certainly read into the film if you wanted to that there may be a subtext of molestation and in, certainly in some of the later films and Freddy vs Jason, I think I think that subtext is writ large. But with with the first film, Craven is very careful to not play as play all of his cards. He, 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 as you say, um, he, it is a mystery. Why is he doing this? Is there, there is a chance that he could have been wrongly accused. And I think that that puts that element of doubt into the audience's heads until that moment that he guts Tina and she starts flying around the bedroom and you realise, oh no, this guy is actually, is actually bad. It's mm-hmm. not just a case of revenge. It is, he's getting immense pleasure out of this. As you say, he's like a predator, a, a cat playing with the mouse. Well, Chad, uh, I, I, I don't know if I answered your, your question really, but the idea that our response from Marge, from Mother, is that, uh, well, the lawyers got fat and the judge got famous, but in the end, somebody didn't sign the search warrant and he walked. And is that a little bit as to what you were referencing as to, well, we don't know the why, we don't know the uh, the 100% justice was served and gosh, this has been the year of where we have uh, people taking the law into their own hands on the retro movie roundtable. Is that a little bit as to what you were getting at? Yeah, exactly. I I think leaving it more vague, even with the possibility of, okay, these parents went after someone that we're not sure was guilty initially, but now he comes back as some form of re- revenge demon. I think that's far easier to root for freddy we have this there's a theme within a a lot of slashers uh there's there's a common theme of there has to be a sin for people to be killed Uh, jason is killing horny teenagers they are committing a sin (laughs) and so they do horny here (laughs) our first person she's in bed with her boyfriend and that's how she dies. She, she has committed the sin. Nancy is our innocent virgin character, but he's, he's still able to manifest through that sin of the parents of, they took the law into their own hand. So that's, 
that's a common theme with slashers. Now, there have been some that have subverted it. Uh, my favorite being Cabin in the Woods. They mm. talk about that quite a bit. It's like, you've got a virgin. She's like, well, I'm not a virgin. Like, well, we, we have to bend, bend the rules a little bit <laughs> yeah. here. And they've got to fit the stereotypes. But yeah, that's that's been a common motif. So yeah, to me, I don't want to say I'm glad there was a case, an awful, awful scandal that involved children. But I think for Freddy to become this icon that he did, if that had truly been prominent within the story, it, we do. We have Krug. Krug isn't getting a franchise no. for Last House on the Left. <laughs> no. it, it just becomes too sadistic. It becomes too hard to stomach. This movie was edited quite a bit and banned by the MPAA, like they had to send it constantly back. Wes is still mad about how much blood they had to cut out of it. They dumped, jeez, uh, it was like 2,200 gallons of blood for Johnny Depp's death. Right. And, and they had to take out a solid five, 10 seconds of it just streaming in. I guess the MPAA said, Wes, enough. Oh, enough. come on. Get it. Ben's <laughs> uh, death is a literal geyser. Uh, yeah. yeah, it is. Um, well, you know, uh, it's when you talk about some of the uh, the sins, or like the, the the kids are getting targeted for a reason, or is there a, a stereotype perhaps that that the killer's looking for something here? I would say that this movie stands out then uh, as what we have is we have a general lack of the quote horror movie lead or horror movie teen doing something stupid resulting in their own demise. Like that great Geico commercial out there, like, should we yes. run to running car? No, let's go hide behind the chainsaw wall. Uh, is that there's, that we don't have that very much. In fact, the uh, maybe we don't go so far as to say the kids do nothing wrong, but we, we have the real onus of violence on the monster, on our killer, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. Nancy Thompson is one of those great uh, movie heroines. She is someone, she's not making the stupid mistakes. She has a plan. That's right. It follows as another one, like even though it may be a bad plan, she's a kid, she's trying her best to come up with a plan to fight this force that she thinks she understands that she's able to pull into the real world. None of the kids are doing anything particularly wrong. They're just going to sleep. It's the parents that are the acting force against them of how many times do you hear, oh, you just need some sleep. You need your rest. I made you a warm glass of milk. Here mm. are pills, whatever else. Mm. The parents are the antagonistic force to them. They are the ones that are setting Freddy up for the kill. It's not the the teens being promiscuous or anything else. There's Michael Myers isn't breaking into the house because the teens were having sex. This is Freddy is just, He's waiting for them to make the mistake of going to sleep, which you got to do. You got to do. Yeah. The generational aspect of it, that this was something that happened a while ago, I guess is something that now that I think about it happens quite a bit in uh, movie franchises like this, um, or even not franchises. For instance, Stephen King's it is that this happened a while ago. This happened again. Chad, what was that movie? Leslie, uh, the Rise of Leslie Vernon behind the yes, mask. behind the mask. Behind the mask. Yeah. These things come uh, like in cycles in a way, and uh, th this one, I I really think that if you have 
watched this before and then you then rewatch it in the context of this is a revenge movie instead of the slasher that that depth reveals itself and i i i really dig as i've said on this podcast several times thinking about this movie as much as i enjoy watching the movie but with this sort of situation we have uh the sets we have the bedroom sets we have the school set or we have the school i guess we should say it's it's a it's a great school um and then we have the boiler rooms the iconic boiler rooms uh tell me about how like i would say as a guy who works in like building management that i probably know more about boiler rooms from the Fred, from the Nightmare on Elm Street movies more than I know from my own experience. Uh, Dan, the the spaces that we're in, you know, uh, and the I think most of this happens at uh, like in these just maybe five or six locales. Mm. Uh, is this something that you're like, oh man, because it's iconic, the boiler rooms, or because he can kind of appear anywhere? Daydreaming becomes dangerous. Uh, is this something that is a lasting impact for you? Yeah, I love I love the uh, the setting of the boiler room because every every killer has to have their lair, you know, their, yeah. their their place of fun. Norman Bates has got the you know the the Bates Motel. Jason has Crystal Lake. Um, uh, uh, Harry Warden has Valentine's Falls, uh, Valentine's Bluffs. I beg your pardon. And Freddy's got his boiler room. You know, it's where he did the killings when he was alive. It's it's insinuated that that's where he took his kids to yes. to uh, you know to kill them. And I love the fact that when, whenever Freddy wants to interact uh, with one of his victims, that's where he takes them. He said, even even though I'm dead, I'm still going to act like I'm alive, and I'm still going to, I'm still going to pretend like nothing has happened. I'm still going to have my way with you, in the way that I want to. I'm still fully in control of the situation, and that that's I think that's why A Nightmare on Elm Street has transcended the genre so well because that sense of that disorientation that comes from dreaming and is particularly in a, in a nightmare where locations can change completely randomly. People can pop in and out and things can happen completely inexplicably. Like a centipede can come out of someone's mouth or yes. a, a body bag can be dragged down a hallway and a hall monitor can say no running in the hallway. <laughs> no, I, I love that because with so many other slasher movies, you know, it's just a guy running through the woods, running through a house, killing somebody in the same locations over and over again. But because Freddy has that control of the dream world, he can change location on a drop of a hat, but he always chooses to go back to the boiler room because that's his safe place. In the same way that sleep is meant to be our safe place, his safe place is his boiler room. Yes, and I, and I love the idea. Gosh, you mentioned like the lair. That's so prudent. But then uh, I love the idea that any wake-up scene you can't really be certain that it's a wake up scene. And we do get our, uh, what I don't even like the idea of relegating it down or boiling it down, no pun intended, to a jump scare. It's the idea that because we're dealing with these uncertainties of what's dreaming, what's not, truly a concept that everyone in every audience has had. That's yeah, special. It's a universal fear. Yes. Is am I in the dream or not? Well, so we have that instance. Chad, uh, do you enjoy or does it add to the movie that there's discussion about dreaming, the dream theory or dream philosophy, whether it comes from Glenn, who talks about the Balinese aspect of dreaming, or whether it comes from the sleep clinic where you've got the, the doctor. So, you know, you know, dreaming is something we don't really understand. 
how, how does that add to this experience for you? Yeah. Yeah. That dude was not a believable doctor <laughs> at all. That was so, a bunch of rabbit. Yes. Yes. He's <laughs> spitting out words and has no idea what he's talking about. But yeah, this is very interesting because there are cultures that have dream demons and ways to explain children dying in their sleep. Mm. And so Wes Craven actually took this from a series of uh, Los Angeles Times articles. There were Southeastern Asian refugees that were coming and they were dying in the throes of these just terrible, terrible nightmares. They came to the U.S. to escape and three men died in really similar instances. And they would say, I'm going to die. I can't go to sleep. And then... People didn't believe them, and they did. They would die from, uh, they'd die screaming. And it was just this phenomena. But Buffy the Vampire Slayer did a very, very memorable episode. I can remember watching fairly young of a demon that would sit on children's chests and basically suffocate them. And only the kids could see them, the adults couldn't. So other cultures have tried to explain these phenomena where otherwise healthy people. Young people are dying in their sleep. So Wes has capitalized. It's not a big U.S. fear, mm. but he's taking other cultures, which is sometimes the best thing you can do. Something that's a little foreign to us. Say, here's another culture that's trying to explain this. I'm going to make this into a true monster here. And yeah, the the sudden unexpected death syndrome, which is uh, it's. It's a real thing. And so we have Freddy Krueger as the manifestation of that. Yeah. And we can either have it as the dream monster or the unseeable threat results in you not waking up. Or we could have it shown to us in a fantastic way using 1984 visual effects, special effects, I don't frequently say we have to talk about that when it comes to movies, but I feel like this movie really mm. surprised me when I looked at the, the title year. I'm like, ooh, this is looking really good. Oh, Jim Doyle is a genius. He's a genius. He's an absolute genius. I want to hear about this genius more from you from you fans. Well, when um, he was being interviewed in the late 80s, uh, Brian Yuzner, who directed Society, he came up with this idea of plastic reality. And it was this, something that was only really cap made capable in the 80s with the creation of polymethacellulose, where you could imagine something and you could create it. And you could create a living puppet or a, a maquette or whatever you like, an animatronic, and you could do it. So, for example, like John Carpenter's The Thing, where you have these fantastical animals, which, you know, which, which is still extraordinary to look at. But with with um, with Brian Yuzner, he said that there is it's not gore it's surrealism like for the moment where freddy where nancy answers the phone and it's freddy's mouth appears and turns into a tongue and yeah, says, yeah, yeah. i'm your boyfriend i'm now. your boyfriend <laughs> great line one of my favorite lines in the film and he says she kept that prop did her, she yeah she took oh, it from brilliant. the set she kept it. that's brilliant and he said this isn't gore it's surrealism in the same way that uh bunuel would be surrealism or david lynch would be surrealist the the, the special effects in this film are amazing. I think the the ones that work better are the ones which are the more subtle ones like that. I mean, the scene where Tina slashed across the chest and you see the gashes appear in real time and then the blood comes spurting out is, you know, it's amazing special effects. But for example, the 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 uh, the bed sheet that goes on Rod's neck and seems to magically tie itself into a noose and drag him 
through his jail cell to, to right. create what looks like a hanging. It's such a subtle, such a subtle thing. And because the, because the film was, you know, not not the biggest budgeted of films, Wes Craven had to be economical with his horror. And I think it's it's things like that, whether it be the use of a revolving room for the the vortex of blood coming out with Johnny Depp's death, or the the, the telephone, as I said, Jim Doyle managed to create these very real these realizations of metaphors, which which really did kind of cement Elm Street's place in the realms of horror as a so much more than just a regular slasher movie, but more of a surrealist work of moments of genuine weirdness and eeriness. I've got something to add on to that, which you said about uh, Rod's uh, hanging, mm -hmm. uh, which they do a good enough job after the fact of being like, oh, he was pulled up there. In fact, if you have subtitles on, it even says neck breaks. Yes, neck breaks. Because we know that's the thing about hanging is it's not that you're being suffocated, it's that your neck is being broken. But aside from that, I just, uh, a quick aside, uh, I'm a huge fan of... Um, of Jim Henson and like Muppet Studios mm -hmm. and the, their animatronic work. And I will say, let's take, for example, Audrey 2 from Little Shop of Horrors, yes. where we've got these green tendrils and they look like vines. But if you pay attention just a little bit, you can like, okay, you can very easily tell these things. Mm. It's not so realistic. But there's something about that sheet snaking up Rod's body. And what else do we get? A lovely sound design aspect of just uh, Fred Krueger. <laughs> and grunting like, and enjoying himself as he's doing he's it. He's yeah. really liking this. Yeah. And that is one of the more unsettling things, too, is, gosh, you really see just how much he likes it. Uh, Chad, did you have something else there? Yeah, Dan alluded to it, but the revolving room is just such a stroke of genius. That's how yes. they did the Tina death, is they built a giant cube that they could rotate, and they had a, a stationary camera mounted, but it messed with Amanda Weiss so much that Wes would have, have to constantly point to the ceiling, which was now the floor, and he'd say, this is up, this is down, and she would just get so disoriented. It doesn't come through in the movie at all. Mm -hmm. She just does this wonderful job of screaming, but she talks about how disoriented she was because she's crawling on something that she views should be the ceiling, but is suddenly her floor. And just then they, they use that same room for Johnny Depp's death and they cut a hole in the ceiling and then just dump the, the gallons <laughs> and gallons and gallons of blood, which is wonderful. But even some of the, the effects for Freddy, like the long arms. It's two guys at the end of the stage, one on one side, one on the other. They just pull the arms out with fishing poles. The the bathtub, we'd probably do that CGI now. I'm a big practical effects. Jim Doyle just cut a hole in the bathtub, and he's the one with that Freddy glove mm -hmm. in between Heather Langenkamp's legs, and he's sitting in the bathtub in this like little tank beside it. And so he's doing these little takes where he holds his breath, goes under, puts mm -hmm. the glove up, and what a great shot that is. Yeah. And he's just doing all these things. The the wall. My favorite shot in the film. Somebody needed to bring that up. My favorite shot in the entire film. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's spandex. They they had just discovered spandex. So they did a wall of spandex. And once again it's Jim Doyle pressing his face against the spandex to get face and hands. And you'll notice before uh, you start getting that imagery, 
there's a crucifix on the wall. Mm. And Wes, Wes Craven has a big Baptist background. His parents were fundamental Baptists. And so they're probably not too happy about his filmography. But there's a lot of that Baptist Im imagery throughout this film. And Freddie is knocking that crucifix off. And that's when he can appear within the room when the crucifix is off the wall. So there's some of that if you do your rewatches. You'll see yeah. religious imagery within this film. Uh, and that's coming from Wes's Baptist background. Yeah, and I'm glad that you brought up the wall. I will say the only effect of the movie that I thought, maybe it jarred me a little bit as I was like, ooh, is this not as good as the rest, is when you mentioned the extending arms. Uh, especially because I don't okay. think it's like, a, it's a necessary aspect of, of Freddy Krueger to be able to show him that he manipulates where he is or what he is or like how... Um, I guess it's hard to nail down precisely the physics of him. That's the only one because it does seem as if they're being pulled up. But yeah. I was also distracted because the lighting of that alley mm. and the lighting of the boiler rooms. And I think our film lighting or our, sorry, our horror film lighting is aces in this movie, especially in that alley scene. Uh, but that, that was the one that I kind of like, ah, that one wasn't great for me. But uh, some of the stuff, like it doesn't need to be um, got. I mean, I think, Chad, you and I agree about the practicality. Dan, you brought up the uh, the thing. And mm. I think it's 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 a it's if you have to point to a uh, practical effects movie as its champion, that might be the one. Yeah, but there's so much in this that uh, that is it, it really adds to, I think, the flavor. It adds to your sort of experience. And that's one, too, is that uh, it's. It's that he can be anywhere. Uh, he does bust through a wall. That's pretty neat. And then he also gets caught by the traps. Yes, the Home Alone. <laughs> home traps. Alone, exactly. Uh huh. And so, Dan, how do you how do you think this operates with our audiences to see that? Wait a second, Nancy's being successful. It's it's cool in that respect because very rarely would the final girls in slasher movies actually be that productive they'd usually win through mere chance or yeah the, the killer themselves would end up causing their own downfall or someone else would do it on their behalf like donald pleasance in in halloween i've got to be honest i'm not the biggest fan of nancy as a character um and i think i think the ending once it gets to the home alone part and you know the room starts exploding and there's fiery footprints the film it doesn't lose me but I think the film starts to become a bit weaker for me because it's in the more intangible ways that Freddy interacts with the characters that he really works for me. When he's brought into the real world and he's getting hit in the chest with a sledgehammer like it's a Laurel and Hardy film. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm okay, it's become more... It, it starts to hint towards, for me personally, it starts to hint to what the rest of the series would end up becoming. This more kind of slapsticky kind of light-hearted jokey yeah yeah it, a cavalcade of errors or the, the idea yes. that it's circus and i i see what you're saying there yeah and, and particularly the final the final way in which freddy is defeated in in uh in uh in what's it called and quotation marks that he just disappears i mean I, I get that it's just meant to be you know it's like a bad a bad thought if you forget about it you know it'll, it'll go away or out of sight out of right. mind kind of thing I think I think the film, due to Wes Craven's pressure by Bob Shea to make a sequel, I think it's clear that I don't think really his heart was in that ending. 
I think if he'd had full control of the, the scripts in the end and the way that the film played out, I don't really think we would have got that Home Alone style ending in the, you know, in the in the in its fullest capacity. I think I think it would have gone maybe back to the dream world, or maybe it would have been a more strange surrealist kind of thing, kind mm-hmm. of like we saw with the end of Wes Craven's New Nightmare. Um, I think it could have gone that way rather than just being this very kind of stereotypical chase through the house ending that a lot of the slasher movies at the time ended with. See, I'm going to go with this. I feel like this movie can kind of be the same debate as Inception. It's a much later film, but are they dreaming? Are they? To me, Nancy is dreaming all of this. I don't think she ever woke up. I think the house chase, I think the power, all of that. When she steps outside, everything's restored. All of her friends are back. And the only way to me, and it's open for interpretation. Everybody has their own interpretation. And I love that about this film. Even though we weren't supposed to get the hook, Wes wanted a happy ending. To me, Nancy lost. Now now in Nightmare 3, they kind of just ignore all that. But but Freddy's not done playing with her. No, not at all. Nancy has become this nuisance to him. He's like, all right, I've got you for another night or whatever it is nancy's still asleep so she is dreaming these successes she's dreaming these victories in a way that a teenager would i mean you're not going to you're going to have these dreams okay i'm going to set these successful traps and it's going to work on this magic dream demon and i'll just turn my back and say i take your power and everything's going to work out for me because that makes sense as a teenager i get that i get that um, the, the I think the thing that sells that idea is the the line that Ronnie Blakely says, where she says, "Do you know what? I'm not going to drink anymore. I just don't like yes. it." Yes, it's such a badly written line, but I think purposefully yes. so because it's what Nancy would imagine in like in her perfect world. Yeah. All of her friends would be alive. The sun would be shining. Her hair would look nice. The bars, <laughs> the bars would be off her house, and her mom would have stopped drinking. So yes. maybe you're right in that idea that, yes, it is all a dream, forgetting about what happens later on in, in the franchise where she comes back. If it is just a singly contained film like Wes Craven wanted it to be, I agree with you that, yes, Nancy lost the fight. Yeah, you know, there's there's so much there with, um, gosh, the way that you just changed my mind about that line. Because, as I've said several times on this show, I think alcoholism is mostly failed in uh, film, it's used as a scapegoat. It's used as a boogeyman of its own. Mm-hmm. And the line at the end of this one is, you know what? <laughs> I'm going to stop drinking. Because it's not easy. Uh, yeah. Gosh. And you can really, uh, only, the discussion is what opens your eyes to it. Like, aha, this isn't really, uh, this isn't the win that we think it is. And I would say that the uh, the gag we could call it a gag of the soft top convertible coming up and it's the red and green of the sweater. That should have happened 45 minutes ago. That should have been part of a different dream. Ending the movie there, not exactly sure if that's what I want. But uh, I don't think we should get into the change one thing just yet. But uh, I, I will say we, we did kind of touch on the how we feel when a movie's worth of struggles results in – it's not the uncertainty I'm talking about, but really results in – 
our character's loss or disaster. Uh, it doesn't sound like it really takes away from it for you guys. Uh, Chad, it seems as if it almost like, oh, this is, we know that's not what Wes Craven wants, but um, do you feel like that is what, because it's what you're left with, I think I've maybe brought up before the idea, the social psychology thing of peak end theory, where there's the peak of the movie, and then there's the end of the movie. Mm. And sometimes the end is given more weight than the peak. Uh, how do you feel about how this movie ends with the, hey, did we actually learn anything or succeed at all? Yeah, I tend to agree, agree with Dan. And it, as I said, Scream, Scream is the perfect movie. It is perfect from beginning to end. Nightmare is not perfect, and it does suffer a weak third act. It it does, but it's still my favorite, and I think I like it because I view it within this framework of our heroine lost. Mm -hmm. She did her best. She did everything she could, and Freddy, just like Thanos, is inevitable. <laughs> Sleep is inevitable, and he is not done, and I... There's something just ultimately sinister to me of a villain saying, it doesn't matter what you do. It does. People don't like the inevitable. People don't like the inescapable. They want some kind of solution to this. I don't. I want this type of dream demon to never stop. And just being able to say, and they establish this later on of, his power comes from people remembering him. Just being able to suddenly turn your back to somebody who's been trying to kill you for an hour and say, right. you know what? I take your power and that being good. No, that's unsatisfying to me. I love the fact that that backfired. If we knew that the sequels were planned and we know that sequels happened, do you think that the first movie's resolution should have included the sleep study, the Balinese dream theories, the like other cultural stuff like you were talking about um or even the reveal of we as a community did this to this guy uh do you feel as if those are all three pretty big cannonballs of ammunition to help i think when there's a story with um you have your protagonist and you have your villain that uh, if there's a solution found and the villain adapts another solution found then the villain adapts um, I, I have to presume that that's what a lot of the movie franchise goes, but I almost feel as if there's too much ammunition in this first movie. Dan, how did you feel about, like, where exactly are we going to go with this, especially since it does end with, well, if I just don't believe in you, I'm going to be safe? Yeah, it's it's a it's a pretty uh, unconvincing ending to me. And I, I think that is in due some parts to Heather Langenkamp's acting. I'll get onto that in a bit. Um, it's weird that you said that, though, um, about the... Uh, you know, the fact that the heroine doesn't win in the end. Because when I think about some of my favourite films of all time, whether it be David Fincher's Seven, Robin Hardy's The Wicker Man, or the film which I think is vastly underrated, uh, Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. All, Agreed. Of, all of those films, <laughs> the the hero doesn't win. Um, and I think I think that makes it very interesting, because it makes, as, as a, a good horror film should, it should make you feel not safe once the lights are turned back on and you know you close point. the curtains and go to bed i love the fact that west craven says well i mean maybe due to the behest of bob shea but the fact that you can't defeat evil that easily evil will always find a way back um good doesn't always triumph it's not going back to what you said about uh, west craven's upbringing the you know good doesn't always triumph in the end 
evil will evil will find its way back. And Freddy Krueger is just that embodiment of the the sins of the fathers coming back to haunt the children. You can't you can't just eradicate evil that easy. Sometimes I like to think of it as a, it, it's not even our protagonist or our heroine or our hero's job to del- to eliminate evil. It's just to get away. Mm-hmm. If it's the it's the house. It's the ranch. It's mm-hmm. the building. It's the school. Get away. Yep. Because the issue is over there. <laughs> so yeah. if we just leave, we half of us didn't make it, but at least we're kind of safer. And that's when you can toy with the idea of like, did you bring something with you? Or is there some reason you have to go back over there? Because if we go back over there, that's where the scary thing is. Uh, I love thinking of it in terms of Grover's near and far. But the the idea is uh, with you can't get away from sleep. And gosh, don't we come back to it. And so that's why this is so scary. Uh, I, I To add to your list, Dan, I wanted to say that's why I love uh, The Ring. Yes. Yeah. Uh, is is you know what you you maybe you were you were you thought we were okay but nah now nah, we're not really and uh, that's just something about this I wanted to bring up uh, maybe one or two other topics but I I, I want to see what whatever grasps your interest guys uh, it would either be our cast of actors playing teenagers uh, or it would be our music. And uh, one of those things must be uh, at least near top of mind for you guys. So w- what is it about our about either of those two things that, that stands out for you here? I think I'll talk about the, the score and the sound because that's what struck me the most when I revisited this film is how good the sound is throughout this movie. Mm-hmm. When we go to the boiler room, it's funny because they had problems finding a dirty boiler room. They had to go to a jail. Because every boiler room they were going to was pristine. So they go to this jail. And operating the way it should. Right. This jail was actually shut down. Uh, The boiler room was several years later for asbestos. So Wes Craven's like, we were breathing in all this asbestos while we were filming. But the hisses and all the subtle notes that uh, Charlie Bernstein is bringing in. We have Heather Langham's boyfriend. He writes that creepy little rhyme. That is so memorable. And then we have Bob Shea's 14-year-old daughter. She's one of the singers for the one, two. And Dan mentioned it. It's almost like a a nursery rhyme throughout this. And so that's just another thing you think of, especially those with kids. We're singing to our children. And okay, are we singing to our children in a manner that is going to send them into a nightmare? And it just creates this surreal atmosphere Scream does it as well. There's there's this grind and there's grunge to it in that main track. That yeah, it's something. I don't know how West does it with a million dollar budget, but he finds the right people to make the sound in his movies just amplify what's going on so much. Even even down to the crunches of the of the feet. Everything is just so articulated and I love it. And with the sound track, there were things in this movie that I thought if I didn't hold it in reverence, would I dislike it? Uh, We have Nancy running away in the boiler room. The time that right before she burns her hand or her arm to wake herself up, there's like a poppy synth track. Yes. Yes. That I love. Yeah. 
that I love. And you're thinking like, wait a second, this, this should be, if this were modern, this would be uh, heavy brass hits and dark bass and cello tones and it would be more ominous but here we have just sort of a uh it's almost as if it, it, it kind of reflects the times but it's it's not bad and because it's not bad it's good mm. and i like that there's another one right when she's a uh, uh drowning in the tub they're mm -hmm. almost drowning that legitimately sounds like they just ripped off devo <laughs> that they've got it playing and if you hadn't thought it before next time you watch thanks. it dear listeners yeah thanks that's what it is uh, it's basically what it is uh but the only thing i would say i i don't care for i can't say i don't care for it but the nursery rhyme itself uh because what it does it what it messed with me this watch was like oh wait a second we already know that freddie's uh an issue here and it, it almost as if um I don't know why or how it was introduced. Maybe the future movies do it, but the idea of this rhyme, it's probably the only thing that I would say, like, it didn't make sense for me as the beginning of the movie. Like, why do people already sing about this scary dude? Um, but aside from that, it does its job. Mm. It, it does its job of adding to the general creepy ambiance. He murdered 20 children a, yeah. a generation ago. So it's the same as our kids singing Ring Around the Rosy which is would be pretty dark to people that lived through the plague like you're you're singing about all of your parents generation falling down dying that came right. out of the plague so what i'm getting at is if the little kids know it then why don't the teens know it and why are they confused about the name fred krueger on the hat if they if the kids know it i'm not trying to pull this movie apart right. i'm right. just saying that was one of those things i was like it's just freddy <laughs> there are a lot of people in the 1980s named fred freddy mercury <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> right. There we go. I, th I think with the, with the with the nursery rhyme, I think it's really just a you know a extension of you know Jason Voorhees's. Yes. You know, it, it's just yeah. it's just one that because of the 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 dream setting and the the themes of sleep by making it a lullaby and because child uh, Freddy was a child killer, I think it just adds to that sense of eeriness and almost grim yes. fairy tale weirdness that that the film brings um it's never i've got to be honest it's never bothered me that much yeah the fact that the kids know it but the adults don't so i think that's just more of the almost the infectious the infection that freddy krueger is causing around the the, villi the the town with all of these kids having the same dreams over and over again i think it's something that the adults are trying to ignore but it's something that the yeah. kids can't ignore because they're being faced with it every time they go back to sleep well, I mean, and there's all types of uh, other examples. You know, maybe think of Candyman or mm. you think of uh, other ideas where there's some kind of urban legend. And I think if you went into this, if you didn't know what the legend of Fred Krueger, the child murderer, was, then maybe you might be hit with the same bit of dissonance that I was hit with. But in general, it is successful as adding to the eeriness, like you said. And I think there's a lot of things that I want to sort of talk about what adds to this movie for sure but i'd like to do it in our superlative section are we ready boys ready okay so it is time to uh go over our movie superlatives dan i'd like you to start with who your mvp of a nightmare on elm street is i'm sorry to be predictable but it's robert england i don't think i don't think nightmare on elm street would be nearly as popular or as iconic if it weren't for robert england his performance in it is so good and the fact that he is on AFI's list of heroes and villains, I think just, you know, it just cements that this was a guy who was, a, you know, a character actor 
you know, had, had dabbled in the horror genre with films like Eaten Alive by Toby Hooper, and then was seen by Wes Craven to do this and just catapulted, catapulted him into superstardom. I, he's brilliant. It, it's easy to think of Freddy Krueger as a bit of a joker now due to the, the way that right. he was treated in the later sequels. But re-watching it again last night, I'd forgotten just how genuinely scary Freddy Krueger is. And because of that, that delight that he takes in the killing of his of his kids, that they're so sadistic. He's so joyfully evil, and only Robert England, I think, could have brought that to the table. Um, yeah, it, it has, yeah, it has it's to about be Robert. The portrayal England. of the character sometimes. Yeah, good choice, uh, Chad. Who's your MVP? It's two for two here. We actually didn't spend much time talking about Robert England, and he he goes into this audition. He's young, he is skinny, he's kind of got a curly afro going on for this audition. So he takes ash and he rubs it under his eyes and he just stares at Wes Craven. And Wes Craven had an experience, he designs the Freddy character from a bunch of different things, from a bully that beat him up named Fred, so he immortalizes him in that respect, to this homeless drunk guy wearing a kind of a pork pie hat and staring at Wes in his bedroom and so that had to conjure up memories for Wes of here's this creepy dude staring at me and Robert England just brings this secret sauce it's this joy and life to this really really sinister character I I love Robert England I go out of my way to watch just about anything he's in and he he will he's not very choosy in some instances <laughs> or but he's always having a good time. I He is such a joy. Yes. I will go. Uh, it is not three for three. I'm going with who wrote the character, or I guess who brought the character, it to, available to be brought to life, which is Wes Craven. Um, it, regardless of uh, how I would view the sequels, what we have here is something that is instantly memorable. There's a reason why it lands on our favorites list and why it is so long-lasting of a success. So I'm going with uh, uh, Wes Craven for my MVP. That's not taking anything away from England. I just think that uh, the entirety of this movie uh, and it's sort of, I don't know, the feel I get from it, it's not just from uh, our portrayal. It's just the writing of the character. And gosh, we just don't really know. And you can't get safe because you got to sleep. Less uh, is my 1B, so I, I don't think yeah. that's the wrong yeah, choice. I, 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 one, 1B. There was a brilliant yeah. tribute written by uh, the uh, critic Kim Newman, who's a very popular horror writer here in the UK. And when Wes Craven passed away in 2015, he wrote an amazing thing on Twitter. And it said, most horror filmmakers don't get to change the genre once in their lifetime. Wes Craven did it at least three times. Mm, and I that's think great. He's, he's, yeah, Wes Craven was absolutely brilliant and uh, yeah i agree with you there actually he might be tied with robert england for mvp of uh, nightmare on the street yeah high praise well who is your best supporting actor dan i actually think um the guy who plays vod is actually really good i should say again sorry uh it's it's uh, it's the one i had trouble with earlier uh shoot well, you could, you could go with so this is an interesting story. He's credited as Nick Corey, Nick Corey yes. because we are not casting Latinos at this point in time. So he makes his agent makes up an Italian name. 
of Nick Corey. That is not his name, but it's so he could get the role as an Italian guy. Wow. wow. So that's, he's actually, he's breaking some new ground. Uh, he's help, helping uh, Latino actors everywhere. Well, I do think it's a good choice. Go ahead, Dan. Yeah, so because at first he just seems to be like the, the stereotypical jock that appears in every every slasher movie. You think, oh, I just can't wait for him to die. But once Tina dies, he becomes such a sympathetic character. And his acting is so good, particularly when he's talking with Heather Langenkamp between those jail bars. And he's saying, I never touched her. There was someone else in the room with us. He's so convincing. And um, I think it's a shame that he's killed off so early on in the film, really, because I think he's he I think he gives a really, really good performance in that. The belies in, in the hands of anyone else, that character could have been almost unbearable to be around because the jock stereotype uh-huh, yeah. was so was so overdone in the uh, the early 80s in the slasher movie. Well, and it would have been doubled up if we hadn't cast Johnny Depp. That character mm. was written to be a jock. And then they cast skinny little Johnny Depp. Right. Who, it got the part because Wes Craven's daughter said, "Oh, he's so handsome. You have to." <laughs> you know, there, you could have just been handsome without being a sporto, and I yeah. thought they were going to go with that. Uh, you omit two lines, and he's just a handsome boyfriend, and right. you don't need him to have a baseball bat or wear a football jersey to bed. Uh, Chad, <laughs> who was your uh, best supporting actor? Mine was Amanda Wiss as Tina. Uh, she kind of has this Janet Lee role where we have to believe at the start of the film that she is the main character. And when she is killed, she gets a heck of a send off. And uh, Amanda just does this wonderful job of not showing that she is disoriented as all get out. She is screaming across all different thresholds of that bedroom. What a send off loved her part. And the first time I saw that, I was like, okay, here's our heroine. And we get that fake out. Nope. Nope. It's actually Heather. Yeah. Well, and what, what's kind of neat about that with Nancy is that, uh, when they are all at the, uh, house before, uh, the, before, you know, she's, she's killed, uh, Nancy says something along the lines of like, Hey, Glenn, we're here for her now, not for us. And I was flabbergasted that a 1984 movie would have a female character say something so selfless and something so caring about being a friend. Yeah. And yeah. Like, that's, and that's something that like, I don't know. It's, it's not like I'm a therapist or anything, but when you hear a line like that, I, you know what? I believed her. Like, sorry, Johnny, we aren't, we aren't doing the deed right now. We got to look out for our friend. I thought that was really something special. It My, goes I, back to the sin aspect though. She's yeah, got to right. remain this virginal character. Virgin. Yeah. yeah. But but it does make sense that she because she does become our main protagonist that oh she does have this um, a, a little extra depth than who we thought our main character might be. My best supporting is John Saxon only yes. because he's got just such a storied career. Um, I yeah. first saw him in Enter the Dragon, and boy, I would have loved to see uh, our sheriff or our detective like really like hey if if uh, Freddie gets brought into the dream world I'll, I'll show him a thing or two about taekwondo whatever it is but uh i just it's it maybe is it unfair chad is it unfair that i pick an adult character and a in a character full of teens absolutely uh, not <laughs> you know how i roll but uh no i just i i liked his character i'm not taken away from the portrayals of the others but i think he deserves a little bit of credit there well he's also in dan's favorite black christmas, black christmas. and he plays yeah, basically here. the same kind of role as well yes he's a lieutenant yes 
Dan, what's your hidden gem from this movie? There is a uh, very, very brief moment where um, Tina and Nancy are talking after the uh, the tape has gone wrong and Johnny Depp's had to immediately turn it off. And he's snuck behind them. And there's a very brief shot where uh, Tina is describing Freddy. And Johnny Depp just looks up at this very, it's a very, very brief cut. And it's a moment of realisation in Johnny Depp's eyes that this is happening to someone else other than me. It's a very subtle blink in your missing oh, moment. Wow. I think it's a very, very effective moment where you just see just how far the reach of this Freddy Krueger really is. It's a very, very brief moment, but it always stands out to me. As a, what a great a choice. Moment of acting. Johnny Depp's first acting gig, and yeah. Oh, what a great choice. What about you, Chad, your hidden gem? I've talked about him before, but Jim Doyle, and I get double bonus here because it's him with Freddy's glove, and it's him with pressing his face against the wall. So he's actually in the movie, as well as just making the movie magic with all these special effects. Awesome, yeah. Now, mine, I, I want you guys to help me out here. There's a sound that is either made by Freddy or surrounding Freddy when there's imminent danger. It's like a digital rattle. Sometimes they show his tongue. It does happen in the bathtub. It's kind of a quick clicking sound. Do you guys know what that sound is? It's it's the uh, knives rubbing together. It's that's it. Okay. Mm -hmm. I thought that sound, it was not overused. That's the thing I was worried about is that like, are you going to have this happen a lot? And when it's used, I think it's used to great effect. So just a little hidden sound like that I really liked. Um, uh, especially since we know that it's not a rattlesnake. It's not his actual tongue. Could they have gone cartoonish with it yet? No, I think they kept it uh, nice and uh, not overused is yeah. what I'll say. Okay, here's a tough one, Dan. We have to recast somebody. Who in A Nightmare on Elm Street are you recasting? I hate to say it. It has to be Heather Langenkamp for me. I, th I think she's the weak element of the film. Um, admittedly, I think she gets better through the course of the film, but I think at the beginning, I think she's the least convincing character. Um, in the later films where she where she returns in part three and part seven, I think she's actually really, really good. But I think in this the first film, I think it's clear that she isn't a you know, a uh, established actress yet. Um, hmm. Thing is, I don't know really who I would have recast instead of that role, but I really do like Amanda Weiss in the film. So I, I personally would have swapped Heather Langenkamp with Amanda Weiss and made Amanda Weiss the final girl and got rid of Heather Not Langenkamp. Not a bad choice. Um, it's, I hate to say that because it's one of my favourite films, but yeah, for me, she has always been the the weakest part of the film in my in my opinion and hey we, we are forcing you to do this it's not like you came in here as a blazing uh, uh chad who are you recasting still reeling from that i love heather so much uh i am going after academy award winner ronnie blakely and it's just i want d wallace i love d wallace in my horror films oh, put yeah. d wallace in here he would have been great uh, Chad, I went after Ronnie Blakely too. Oh, I, I think she incredibly overacts in this movie. And if I want to see someone at that age overact, I want it to be Goldie Hawn. Hmm. Oh. Interesting. Overboard. She 40 years old, and I think it would have worked. Plus, right. okay. who says no to Goldie Hawn on screen? <laughs> okay. So, um, Dan, what is your best shot of the movie? Uh, the, uh, the spandex wall. 
the way the way that shot yeah. is lit and the sound effect that that's kind of like groaning noise that accompanies it and the slow pan that the camera does where you see just the full extent of the wall and how wide uh, Freddy's reaching over Nancy I think it's a brilliant shot it's my favorite shot in the film and I think it's one of the best shots in any 80s horror film I think it's pretty cool too because we aren't really introduced to the character yet mm-hmm. and that does make me I'm gonna do a quick aside we are shown in the opening credits like the building of the glove do we need that do you think i'm fine with it i'm fine with the menace but no we don't need it no we don't need it but i do like i love the 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 hissing of the boilers and the dripping of the water and freddy slowly cackling to himself yeah like i think i think this clearly set before he's murdered so this is maybe a, a much younger freddy creating the implement that he will kill these 20 kids with I, I think it's a I think it's a cool little aside, but yeah, it's, it's not needed. Just something to come over the credits. I only bring it up because uh, it's it's when the stuff is being like when the push through the wall is happening. Mm. We haven't really been given our full reveal just yet. But uh, I'll I digress. Uh, what is your best shot, Chad? The iconic shot of the glove between Nancy's legs in the bathroom. I, it's just. It is absolute perfection for me. It still has the bit of 80s sex appeal. You've got Heather Langenkamp in the bathtub, but just the menace of the hand between her legs. Uh, Chad, we're two for two. Uh, I, I also am putting that as my top scene. And I almost said, like, do I need a disclaimer? Like, it's, it, this is a, I'm doing it for the art here, yes. not because of the subject. I'm reading uh, it for the articles, Mom. <laughs> I, I promise. I promise. Uh, <laughs> pay no mind that it's upside down. Okay. Well, uh, yeah, that's my best shot as well. What is your best scene, Dan? Uh, Tina's death. I think the, the build-up to Tina's death, oh, the... Yeah. the um, the moment when she first walks out of that patio door and goes outside calling who's there, I think that entire build-up is is brilliant. And I think it's really a precursor to how Wes Craven would go on to direct the intro to Scream with Drew Barrymore. It's that brilliant yeah. idea of the cat chasing the mouse, toying with them, knowing exactly what they're going to do, and just keeping the, the, the tension on the knife edge. I, I, it's brilliant. And that, that shot where his face is peeled off is still... It's still very, very freaky to me. That that mm-hmm. entire sequence up to the moment where Johnny Depp and Heather Langenkamp burst into the bedroom to see Tina's just slaughtered. I think that entire five minute sequence is per- pure horror perfection. It's very, very good, and it was a nominee for mine. Chad, what's your best scene? I feel like I'm in church because I just want to say amen, but <laughs> I. As bad as the doctor was, and we talked about the absolute nonsense coming out of his mouth, everything after he shuts up is great. So this sleep therapy scene with Nancy, where she just starts thrashing around, we don't see what's happening to her. And I like that, by the way. Mm. But when she wakes up, she has slashes on her arms, which we're concerned about what we've kind of already seen. But then she says, I brought something back and she pulls this hat. And that is a moment when you are first seeing this movie where you just say, whoa, okay, you can get hurt, but you can also pull things from your dream. And it just, it it kicks it up a notch for me. Yep. A cool pivot. Yeah. I I really liked that too. 
my best scene is a, a similar cat and mouse scene, but it, it's uh, Freddy's chase of Nancy as she tries to figure out. She's getting brave about the situation and trying to figure out how to get in and get out uh, with uh, Glenn keeping watch, which he doesn't do a good job of. Uh, <laughs> lots of different world bending things happening. Uh, then you, you, I think that it is during that scene that we have another body bag, uh, Tina, and we have the the centipede coming out of the mm. mouth. It ends with there's wrestling on the bed. Uh, she, she, I'm not going to say inex- inexplicably, but she grabs a pillow. The pillow gets ripped to shreds. So we've got all the feathers in the air. Um, it's not comedic, but it is sort of visually attractive. Like, oh, look at all this stuff happening. Uh, I think just before is when like he busts through the door and the mirror. There's a whole lot going on there. And it, it does, it, it, it batten down the hatches with the, uh, cat and mouse stuff and it just leans into Freddie being he's not just a killer he's a terrorizer and he, that is it is very much like cats are <laughs> with uh, yes. what they leave on your front porches um, and then she is saved by the bell indeed yes uh, okay so we've got a couple left here Dan what is your best wardrobe or makeup moment oh that's a good question I would probably go for the moment that I just alluded to where Freddie's face peels off because it's it's a yeah. really simple effect but it's so bizarre and so gross you know it's so grotesque in how it's done and the fact that he's still laughing while his face is being peeled off it's a moment that has always stuck with me even when i saw the film you know however many years ago it was for the first time i, lo- I love yeah. that moment I think it's terrific yes that's that's Dustin's puppet moment, because that is a puppet that they just have a little string for his face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like that. Too. Uh, what, what is your choice here, Chad? It's got to be the razor claw for me. And part of the reason is just the hilarious stories. So they had several different iterations of the razor glove. They had one that was sharp and that they had one that wasn't. And they kept losing track of which one was sharp and which one wasn't. Robert England pretty much immediately discovered as he's playing with it, that he's stabbing himself, but he forgets. And he's going after Cass too. And later on in the series, he actually winds up scarring some people, slashing at at them. Nobody can keep track of, hey, does Robert have the razor knife one or does he have a fake one? Just build a fake one, man. (laughs) Until you're ready. But yeah, it's it's menacing. It's terrifying. And when he drags it along in the boiler room, Man, the sound effects that go with it. It's oh, yes. Yeah. It's still effective. I agree. I agree. And special shout out to aftermarket Freddy Krueger gloves. Uh, Chad and I were talking a little bit about Halloween before we recorded, and I failed to mention that one of my best uh, Halloween costumes when I was a young man was I did a great Edward Scissorhands, and the only way you can make Edward Scissorhands, you take a Freddy Krueger glove because you've already got the blades mm-hmm. on there. And you cut large foam core scissors to where you can then lightly move them around. It's already made for you. It's already there. 20 bucks at your spirit Halloween. Uh, I, so I love the glove too. It's not getting my best here. My best is a little obscure. Well, not obscure, but it's just, it's not a focal point. Is uh, I think more guys should wear bare midriff jerseys. Right. And uh, Ezekiel Elliott look. Yeah, the Ezekiel Elliott look. And guess what, fellas? You don't have to have six pack abs to do it. Uh, there's a difference between basketball shorts and shorts that go above your knee. And there's a big difference of when your belly button is, is feeling that, that cool breeze and when it's not. And, uh, when you're down here in Texas, like I am, then you've just had a record setting summer. 
you need to sometimes expose expose the belly. So uh, I have, this is more of a real world application that we all need to be more comfortable with our bodies and let it out. Uh, okay. And I also give a quick shout out to the guy playing yes. Rod for running full speed down a road in barefoot. In bare feet, yes. yes. Uh, similar shout out to a former movie we did, uh, Mel Gibson, Lethal Weapon. He's doing a lot of barefoot running, and that's that's tough. Um, and you can tell it's hurting yeah. <laughs> in the movie. They don't hide it. It's hurting. Uh, but, you know, it, yeah, that's a good shout out there. Okay, here's uh, an important one, Dan. Mm. You have to change one thing about this movie. What are you going to change? What would I change about A Nightmare on Elm Street? It's one of the most critically lauded horror films of all time. Mm-hmm. Ooh. I hate to say it again, but possibly the casting of Heather Langenkamp. Maybe focusing a bit Ooh. more on the backstory of Freddy. I think that I think the the yes. maybe seeing pre burned Freddy Krueger doing his stuff might have been uh, quite cool. Um, but in all honesty, it's very difficult to know what to change about that film because it is pretty much, you know, it's pretty much a masterpiece, really. Right. Yeah. Okay, trying to call. say, what would you change about the Sistine Chapel? You know, oh, I'm not sure about his the angle of his finger there. You know, I'd make it slightly more. Too tall. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Ceiling should be bigger. Okay, so um, good, good option there. I, I, I actually always am in favor of lore and history, and that probably comes throughout the rest of the series. But the idea of um, we don't get too much of it here, I think it could be improved. Chad, what's your change? One thing. You mentioned an effect that doesn't hold up, so I'm going after the one that Jim Doyle hates the most, and I'm not a fan. There's a blow-up doll in the end of the mom that gets sucked into the window. It's it's very brief, but it's very terrible. They were out of time, they were out of budget, and they needed this hook at the end. So this is what they did in an absolute pinch. Give (laughs) Give them more time, give them more budget. It was shot in 32 days. So give them another two weeks. Let Jim work his magic. He can probably come up with something that doesn't look so hokey. And I think we get a better ending out of it. I'd like to change my answer. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Old rubber legs going through the door. Yeah. It's, it kills the ending of the film to be honest. It it ends up ending on a laugh than a scare, which I think is fatal for a horror film. You're right. And it, it, you almost expect there to be kind of a whoop kind of sound. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's a good choice, Chad. Okay. So with my change, one thing, I think I'm actually in favor of the dream theory or the dream understanding stuff. I just don't think it's best coming from Glenn Unless Glenn is rewritten to be kind of a trippy, dreamy, hippie friend who's like that from the very beginning. So you want Marty from Cabin in the Woods? Thank you. Yes. (laughs) Well, yeah. yeah. I think that if you can come to rely on an outer character or a peripheral character for some type of counsel or knowledge that isn't a fluke or something that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense – did any of you guys, let's just say the first time you watched it, say, oh, I bet that kid knows all about Balinese dream fighting or whatever <laughs> whatever it was. I like the idea that 
also that the, the kids maybe figure it out themselves. Mm. And if they can come to another teenager, or like that's the outcast or that's the Ali Sheedy character, somebody who's like, oh, let's let's go and co- consult with this person. I think I might like that better. But then I might also be letting some of the more recency bias come in the idea of like stranger things or the idea of like leave it up to the kids because kids plus adults is better but that's where i'm just kind of torn here but that's that's the direction i would Mm -hmm. be going to i don't think there's uh too much that would be a larger change than that would be that's fair i mean that's that's kind of how it follows works is there are kids that they don't know the entirety of the rules, but they're figuring it out themselves. And you have one character that knows enough of, hey, it's not going to stop following you until you pass it on. He knows that much, but right. the rules are still somewhat unclear and they're figuring it out as the movie goes on. So yeah, that's... I, I like that idea. I, th- I think that for me, the the immediate issue that rises there was because because of the time that the film was made and the, the genre that it's stuck in. If you wanted a character that would be like that, it would be very much the nerd stereotype. Um, yeah. Which I think was pretty tired at that point. Um, so I think I think Wes Craven does an interesting thing by making the boyfriend, you know, the good-looking guy, also an intelligent guy, which didn't happen yeah. very often in, in the slasher films of the eighties. Uh, my concern when you say that was they introduce a mystical figure, and it in the eighties it was probably a Native American. There'd be one random <laughs> yeah. Native American living on yeah. Elm Street, and you go to this shaman type character, and he's he explains, "Oh, for my people, this he is known as the Dream Demon," <laughs> and and that's how this goes in the eighties. It's like, ah, oh, we. We don't need this treatment. <laughs> Let's live in a world where we believe that if Wes Craven did that, he would have been the only one that did it right. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Right. Packed yeah. on that, that Definitely. he would have done it that wasn't uh, Tatanka. <laughs> he wouldn't have. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, let's finish with this one here. Dan, what's your best quote? I'm your boyfriend now, Nancy. That's oh, good. Nice. Oh, good. Such a good line. It's, it is. I love it too. Chad, what's yours? One, two, Freddy's coming for you. The entire thing, though. I mean, I'm not going to sing all of it, but three, four, better lock the door. Five, six, get your crucifix. Seven, eight, going to stay up late. Nine, ten, never sleep again. It's so creepy when children sing. Children are creepy. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Good choice there too. Good choice there too. Uh, I'm going to break the rules a little bit. My best quote is a uh, is a dialogue. It's a conversation. Uh, it is between Glenn and his mom. Miss Nude America is going to be on tonight. <laughs> well, how can you hear what she's going to say? Who cares what she says? <laughs> right. <laughs> and his mom is completely cool with it. She's just like, oh, teenagers. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, we are going to rate our movie and we're going to say whether we recommend it but before we do dan is there anything in your world in your life that you'd like to plug for our listeners um not really i do write uh film reviews for every for every uh movie that i watch so you can either follow me on facebook at dan cook movie reviews and i'm also on letterboxd at dan cook 21 um i used to run another website but that's sort of fallen by the wayside so that's mostly where i operate in terms of talking about films now so yeah you can follow me there if you like 
And if you're listening to a movie podcast, then you are definitely the type of person to read movie reviews. So let's get to our rating and recommendation. Dan, we use a five-star system, mm -hmm. so our rating is out of five stars. We do use half-star increments. So the lowest you can go is half a star. The highest is five stars. What do you rate A Nightmare on Elm Street? Four stars out of five. A good rating. A good rating. And I think we've talked about how this falls into our favorites, all of us, mm -hmm. in a certain different kind of way. But that there are also things that we had mentioned are uh, potential detractors or, you know, I, I agree with Chad when he said Scream is a perfect movie, mm -hmm. which is why Scream got five stars. Uh, Chad, what's your rating? It's five stars. It is my favorite movie. I, For concept, execution, iconic villain, I love this movie so, so very much. It, I think it's the scariest concept of any horror movie I can think of. So for me, we've talked about the flaws. Doesn't doesn't erase the five stars for me. It is top of the list for me. This isn't a favorite movie of mine, but it is a favorite concept. And when it came time to rate this, I was uh, sometimes what I do is I have to start asking myself questions. Is that well, okay? Do I land on four stars? Well, is it as good as Coach Carter with Samuel Jackson? Yeah, it's better. Is it as good as Mandy Moore's A Walk to Remember? Yeah. <laughs> um, and then I start thinking of my five-star movies. And I'm like, is it the perfect movie? I don't think so. So I think I'm, I'm going to go in with, uh, with four and a half. And I didn't expect to. I expected to rate this movie that this, in the same generous term of this movie sets out to accomplish something and it does. But I think it accomplishes more than that. And I think I'm very lucky to not be biased with the rest of the film series because I don't have as much experience with it. But by itself and what this thing starts with, if we don't end on a laugh, if we don't end with the sex doll going through the door and, the, <laughs> and that particular car driving away, I think maybe this has the potential to have been a five-star movie. And I see why it's some people's favorite. Uh, and a 95% critics meter. That's pretty high. Uh, but for me, this is four and a half. Uh, for its ranking, I don't know if four and a half translates to being high on the uh, list of our 2023 uh, reviewed movies. I just think this movie deserves all the credit and praise it's ever gotten. Uh, just maybe not quite the five star for me. So, and I certainly recommend it. Uh, Chad, can you help me pick a movie for next time? Absolutely. So... We are still in our spooky season. Each of these horror mystery movies involves a captive audience of strangers being put into terrifying situations. So option number one, House of Nine from 2005. Nine strangers with no apparent connection between them are abducted, drugged, kidnapped, and sealed in a house together. Option two is Exam from 2009. Eight candidates for a highly desirable corporate job are locked together in an exam room, given a final test with just one seemingly simple question. However, it doesn't take long for confusion to ensue and tensions to unravel. Or option number three, Cube from 1997, Canada's finest. Six complete strangers with widely varying personalities are involuntarily placed in an endless maze containing deadly traps. If I were looking at the years alone, I think I would have to go with the earliest example of this kind of trope, I guess we'll say. Uh, and I can't say no to, God, what do you say, Canada's Finest? We yes. got a cube next week. Yes. We, are, we are on low budget. Uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, you don't think of as low budget, but we will continue our low budget horror movies. 
I love it. I love it. Well, Dan, thank you for joining. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. The movie's great. Talking about the movie sometimes even better. And thank you, Chad. And thank you, all the lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. We invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. Subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts. You better delete that Stitcher because it's gonzo. Pandora or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Give us a like on Facebook, Instagram, and follow us on Twitter at movie underscore retro. Email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. Hey, producing and providing this podcast is fun, but not free. We invite you to support the show at our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash retromovieroundtable. Any contribution is much appreciated and will go towards making the show better for you, the listeners. As always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Chad? Jason, my special, special boy. Do you know what your gift is? No matter what they do to you, you cannot die. You can never die. You've been sleeping, honey. But now, the time has come to wake up. Mommy has something she wants you to do.